So when I was a kid, there were really only two types of trolls in the world. The first one were the trolls with the crazy hair and the crop tops and the belly button jewelry before it ever became popular. And then the other trolls, of course, were the ones that lived under bridges. Now, if you remember, they lived under bridges. They weren't a real big fan of the billy goats gruff. And every once in a while, you would have to solve a riddle in order to cross the bridge. Now, if there was a bridge in a park like at Como, you can bet that I played the troll against my brother, right? And I would have riddles that he would have to solve, and and we would read the stories about the trolls. And last night, as I was researching a little bit more about where that comes from, I found out it's Norwegian, and I'm Norwegian, so apparently that's why I would go under the bridge and pretend to be a troll. Now, as I've gotten older, I've realized there are still trolls in the world, but they look a little bit different nowadays. You see, instead of living under a bridge, the trolls in the world now lurk in the shadows of internet forums, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and even the comment section of your favorite newspaper's social media site. And they're ready to pounce on their unsuspecting victims. Now, Urban Dictionary defines trolling like this. They say trolling, verb, as it relates to the internet, is the deliberate act by a troll, noun or adjective, of making random, unsolicited, and or controversial comments on internet forums with the intent to provoke an emotional knee-jerk reaction from unsuspecting readers to engage in a fight or an argument. This is my favorite part. Trolling online forums, as described above, is actually analogous to the fishing technique of trolling, where colorful baits and lures are often pulled behind a slow-moving boat often with multiple fishing lines covering large bodies of water, such as a large lake or the ocean, the trolling lures attract unsuspecting fish, intriguing them with the way they move through the water, thus enticing these foolish fish to take the bait. Not unlike unsuspecting internet victims, once hooked, the fish are reeled in for the catch before they realize they've been duped by the troll slash fisherman. So trolls today look a lot different. In life, you're often the troll or you're being trolled, right? So you're scrolling through your favorite newspaper, whether it's Star Tribune or Pioneer Press. I'm a St. Paul girl, so I have strong opinions on that, right? So you're scrolling through the comment section and you've all seen it. That comment that just lures you in. And you start thinking to yourself, could anybody actually be this stupid? And for a brief moment, you consider replying, and maybe you do, or maybe you think twice and you decide to not take the bait, but you have then just encountered trolling. Trolls believe the worst about other people. So if you Instagram your Chick-fil-A lunch, it's probably because you're a Republican. If you post on Facebook that you're reading Michelle Obama's memoir, it's probably because you're a Democrat. If you post that article... It's because you only think X, but if you don't post that article, it's because you only think Y. Trolls assume that you voted for this person on election day, that you only believe these very specific things, and they read every post and interpret every conversation that you have with them as proof that they are who, you, who they thought you were. Trolls lure you in with their comments. They plant landmines for you to walk on. And they wait for you to engage. Now, if we're honest, trolling isn't actually limited to social media, right? It's not limited to the comments we read or that we leave on articles. 
often we act a little bit troll-like in our day-to-day life. We assume the worst about other people, and we respond with what we assume they're going to answer with. So there's a book that we're recommending all throughout this series called Difficult Conversations. It's by three people named Stone, Patton, and Heen. And they write this. They say, in a charitable mood, you may think, well, everyone has their opinion, or there are two sides to every story. But most of us don't really buy that. Deep down, we believe that the problem, put simply, is them. They're selfish. Like, my girlfriend won't go to a couples counselor with me. She says it's a waste of money. I say it's important to me, but she doesn't care. They're naive. My daughter's got all these big ideas about going to New York and making it in the theater. She just doesn't understand what she's up against. They're controlling. We always do everything my boss's way. It drives me crazy because he acts like his ideas are better than anyone else's, even when he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or they're irrational. My great-aunt Bertha sleeps on the sagging old mattress. She's got terrible back problems. But no matter what I say, she refuses to let me buy her a new mattress. Everyone in the family tells me, Rory, Aunt Bertha is just crazy. You can't reason with her. And I guess they're right. If that's what we're thinking, then it's not surprising we end up arguing. Rory, for example, cares about Aunt Bertha. She wants to help, and she has the capacity to help. So Rory does what we all do. If the other person is stubborn, we assert harder in an attempt to break through whatever is keeping them from seeing what's sensible. If you would just try this new mattress, you would see how much more comfortable it is. If the other person is naive, we try to educate them about how life really is. And if they're being selfish or manipulative, we may try to be forthright and just call them on it. We persist in the hope that what we say will eventually make a difference. But instead, our persistence leads to arguments. And these arguments lead nowhere. Nothing gets settled. We each feel unheard or poorly treated. We're frustrated not only because the other person is being so unreasonable, but because we feel powerless to do anything about it. And the constant arguing isn't doing the relationship any good. Yet we're not sure what to do instead. We can't just pretend there's no disagreement, that it doesn't matter, that it's all the same to us. It does matter. It's not all the same to us. That's why we feel so strongly about it in the first place. But if arguing leads nowhere, what else can we do? Now, I think as we read that, we all start to see some of the conversations that we've had fall into those categories, right? That we assume that the other person is being unreasonable or they're being selfish or they just don't understand how the world works. We assume that they're seeing it through a lens and we're responding, expecting what their response is going to be. And so in our own life, we act a little bit troll-like. We act a little bit troll-like online sometimes, but hopefully not too often. But often we act a little bit troll-like in our day-to-day conversations. We maybe toss in just enough of a lure to draw people in so that we can share our opinion on how they're acting. You see, because trolls set traps, and they believe the worst about other people. But if it's not our only option to act troll-like, and if it's not our only option to have every contentious conversation end in argument, then what other option do we have? I mean, there are topics in the world that are potential traps, right? And they're everywhere. These topics are everywhere. Everything from politics to religion to class and to marriage and gender, which is today's topic, can be weaponized. They can be dressed up as lures. They can be brought behind conversations and they can be used to trap us in uncomfortable discussions at best and all out screaming matches at worst. Over the past decade, 
the relationship between men and women has become increasingly contentious. And this isn't a new problem, right? From the beginning of time, there's been contention between the genders. But in the past decade, headlines have frightened us and discourse has been explosive and stereotypes have ruled. What if there's a better way of having these conversations? What if there's a better way of talking about what it means to be male and female that goes beyond stereotypes and tensions and lets us actually get somewhere in a conversation without being lured in or stepping on a landmine? I truly believe that the church can be at the forefront of setting an example for the world of what it looks like to be male and female in relationship together that could transform every part of our lives. Because here's the bottom line, and there's a place to write this in your notes. The bottom line is we need each other. We need each other. The church and the world, it's simple math, can't survive on 50% participation. If 50% feels engaged and 50% feels disengaged, the church and the world just can't survive. And if we're stuck in the trenches, constantly fighting each other, there's no way we can actually pay attention to what's important. And so what if there's a way for us to have men and women, rich and poor, young and old, fully invested in the mission of the church? And what if there's a way that we can get there together? The good news is that the topic that we're talking about is hardly new. The topic we're talking about is hardly new. From the beginning of time, the Bible has Adam and Eve working together in unity, and then everything falls apart. And their first reaction is to blame each other for what just happened. The first reaction is to turn outside instead of working together. And so the Bible from the very beginning records discontent and disconnection between men and women. And it records examples of them working together really successfully. It records anxiety and questions over what's proper. And it records examples when these cultural trends were overcome by a new type of community. Corinthians, the book that we're in all throughout this series, the two letters to the church in Corinth, it records all these questions, all these anxieties between the status quo and this new way that people were invited to live into. Because in Corinth, this new young church is trying to figure out what it means and looks like for them to have freedom in Christ and to use that freedom in practice for the common good. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand what all of this looks like, what it all looks like to follow Christ in practice in the middle of issues that were tearing them apart. The issues that they face are numerous, and gender takes one of the center stages in this letter. First Corinthians, if I'm honest, in particular, has a lot of passages about gender that could become landmines or traps for people. It, the relationship between men and women in 1 Corinthians is difficult and contentious, and the way that Paul phrases things and what he says can often be twisted and, and turned and can be used to trap and lure people in or have it explode in your face. There are two that are the most contentious. One is the passage that comes later in 1 Corinthians, where it appears that Paul silences the voice of women in the assembly. The second is 1 Corinthians 11, which is where we're diving in today. You see, I think that when we hear these passages, we assume that they're traps and landmines and nothing else. 
And what we either have to do is we either have to engage with them and use them as weapons, or we have to ignore it and just hope that it doesn't hit us. But I think there's a better way for us to understand these. I think there's actually more to the story of these passages than we ever imagined. So if you have your Bible in front of you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, we would love to send one home with you free of charge. And so there's Bibles at the back tables that you can grab as you go here today as our gift to you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's a passage, right? <laughs> I mean, that is just difficult from the outset. I remember diving into this about two months ago when I found out I was preaching on it and reading it and just going, what is that? right? Because it's difficult to understand. It's contentious. And it's not only me who doesn't understand it because I don't have a a doctorate in first Corinthians, but it's a difficult to understand passage for almost every biblical scholar on the planet today. In fact, coming into today, I had 31 pages of notes on 13 verses from about 12 different sources who were almost all saying different things. They were saying, when it comes to this issue of veiling, that there are a few different reasons why Paul might have addressed this in the first place. Perhaps, one writes, the comments given on veiling are because the women who would walk around with men in public unveiled in ancient Rome were women of less than great repute. And Paul was trying to prevent those within the church from having assumptions put on them within culture that simply weren't true about who they were and what they were practicing. Perhaps, says another commentary writer who has more degrees than me, the main issue is that veiling constituted being of a certain social class, and Paul's instructions are to prevent financial division from happening within the church. Perhaps, says another person who also has more degrees than me, Paul is trying to prevent men from veiling because Augustus in that time would preside over pagan events veiled, which meant that men veiling in worship would cause Christian worship gatherings to look like pagan worship gatherings. And then one says that it's an issue of modesty, that walking into an unveiled service in that time would be like walking into a service in our time where everyone was wearing a swimsuit. And despite the fact there's a water park over there, we're never going to have a swimsuited service. Thank goodness. What's clear is that there's something cultural at play here in this letter. There's something cultural happening that we don't fully understand. 
There's something cultural happening about veiling, which is why this whole message isn't going to be about why we should practice veiling today, even though it probably cuts down on everyone's hair routine in the morning. And Paul is writing to help guide the Corinthians in a specific direction that will help them advance the gospel and not hinder it in their specific context. What's also clear is that this issue of veiling, since Paul addresses it in a letter where he's trying to cut down on the church division, that this issue of veiling was causing more division instead of unity. And it was leading to the church reducing its impact on the world around it. One commentary says that the issue for Paul at hand is that men and women should present themselves in a way that honors their gender uniqueness, especially when they're in front of a church. And moreover, they should do this in a way that respects the surrounding culture. And so men and women should present themselves in a way that honors the fact that there's this uniqueness between men and women. And they should do it in a way that helps us to be able to further a message in a culture that's already divided. And I think what's even more interesting than veiling is what Paul does in verses 8 through 12. So this whole time he's building up to this uniqueness. Right, that there's this uniqueness between men and women. There's these specific cultural rules that he's bringing forth for men and women. And then in verses 8 through 12, he hits you with this bombshell. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Which, side note, literally no commentary knows what to do with that line. The whole because of the angels part, every commentary says there's like six different options why Paul says this. So, uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things come from God. Paul here is making this case that's really twofold. That in the beginning of creation, woman was made from man. But now, as we all know, because we've taken eighth grade biology, man is now born of woman. And regardless of that, all things come from God. And so at the same time that he sets up this uniqueness, he sets up this dependence on one another that's rooted in the very basis of who we are as human beings. There are two important biblical practices that we get from this contentious, confusing text. The first biblical practice is this. It's to practice interdependence. Practice interdependence. In a book called Paul Within Judaism, one of the essayists makes this point. He says, it's hardly ever been noted, however, that the fact Paul discusses issues concerning the active role of women in the assemblies provides clear evidence that women were not only members of the messianic movement, but they were self-evidentially part of the assemblies, the actual gatherings of the movement, and they played an actual role in these gatherings. The mere fact that Paul considers it necessary to provide guidance to men and to women concerning an orderly way for assembly meetings to be conducted demonstrates that these were mixed gatherings wherein both men and women were active. In the context of Greek and Roman societies, in which gender segregation was the norm rather than the exception, this is rather noteworthy, and the active role of women in such a mixed assembly even more so. Paul never challenges the participation of women in the actual gatherings of the ecclesia in any way. What he does address is the conduct of both men and women on those occasions. And so all throughout Paul's letters, as he's addressing these contentious topics about gender, he's assuming that men and women are working together in this new messianic movement, that they're both involved in the assemblies, that they're both praying and prophesying. And so Paul's instructions about source and authority lead to Paul presenting in verse 11 that woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman, and both come from God. 
Another commentary says it this way. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. They were made for each other. It's not good for a man to be alone. And therefore, when a woman was made and made for man, the man was intended to be a comfort and a help and a defense to the woman, though not so directly and immediately made for her. They were made to be a mutual comfort and a blessing, not one a slave and the other a tyrant. And so in today's world, where gender is contentious and working together feels really hard, I think that God invites us to practice interdependence, to practice this need for us to come together as men and women to work together for the common good and for the common mission. And for us today, this looks like us being really intentional to work together, to depend on one another at home and at work and in the church. The voices and perspectives of men and women are valuable, and we need both perspectives and voices at the table being respected so that both can flourish. We need to be enriched by the perspective that one another brings and to be able to work together to accomplish the massive mission that God has called us to. The early church was noteworthy for how much it included and valued the voice of men and women. And the church today can be noteworthy as men and women work together, not independently of each other, not afraid to come together, but working inter- Dependently, working together and relying on each other. The second biblical principle that we get from this is to set a God-honoring example. To set a God-honoring example. You see, so Paul presupposes that men and women are working together in this assembly. That men and women are both praying and prophesying. But he's concerned that the way that they're doing it is orderly. That it fits within the culture that they're working in. Paul's comments on veiling and the various cultural meanings that it could take on demonstrate that the church was participating in cultural practices that weren't actually benefiting the church, but they were impacting the church's ability to be the church within that specific culture. I think the same can be true for men and women today, that there are practices or things that we engage in that sometimes can negatively impact the way that the world views the church. And so Paul is giving them instructions to set a good example for the culture around them, to be a community that's different in all the right ways. Because the rest of Corinth was watching the church as it blossomed. The rest of Corinth was watching these assemblies that seemed so different than anything else that was accessible to them in that time. And Paul's concerned that they're setting an example that's good. What's clear is that both men and women have been given excellent gifts that are useful to do what God has called us to do. And all throughout the Bible, God is concerned that these gifts are being stewarded well. In 1 Corinthians, in, in verses 11, 2 through 16, Paul is concerned that men and women are exercising their leadership gifts with appropriate authority while presenting themselves in a manner that celebrates the uniqueness of their genders but also allows them to work within the culture to show a different way forward. And just as much as the church, or the world, was watching the church in Corinth, the world is watching the church today. Maybe even a little bit more closely, thanks to social media. They're watching the stories that we share, the jokes that we tell, the way we work or don't work together, and the example we set. We can be trendsetters of culture. 
We can have an opportunity as the church to demonstrate a way forward for men and women that transforms what people believe about who God is and who he's called and how they work together. We're called to use our gifts and we're called to use them well. And so Paul, throughout this passage, is pushing the Corinthians and pushing us to practice those gifts well in a way that transforms the culture around us. I think all of this conversation, all of the conversation between men and women starts with us learning how to understand each other. Because the fact of the matter is, is that just because I preach this today doesn't mean that all the tensions are going to go away. And doesn't mean that all of this is all of a sudden going to become very easy and not at all complicated and never messy, right? None of the tensions are going to go away. And try as we might to set the standard for the world, there are going to be bumps in the road, there are going to be bruises, and there's going to be learning experiences and moments when we mistakenly widen the divide instead of closing it. In difficult conversations... Stone, Patton, and Heen provide us with a guide to having conversations about things like men and women and their roles, rights, and responsibilities in ways that are life-giving, helpful, and transformative. They say that to get anywhere in a disagreement, we need to understand the other person's story well enough to see how their conclusions make sense within it. And we need to help them understand the story in which our conclusions make sense. Understanding each other's stories from the inside won't necessarily solve the problem, but it's an essential first step. We have different stories, and this is no less true and maybe more true than when it comes to what it means to be male and female in the home, in work, and in the world. Our different stories come from a few different places, says Difficult Conversations. For one, we have different information. We've noticed different things. And we each know ourselves better than anybody else. I mean, that's just basic truth, right? We each know each other best than anyone else. And we've noticed different things. We've taken in different information. And if that doesn't make conversations difficult and contentious enough, we're also influenced by our past experiences. And we apply different implicit rules, meaning that we don't tell other people what those rules are. And we apply that to our lives and to other people. Now, do you guys see how this could become really contentious really fast? So if there's one thing that we need to do before we do anything else when it comes to this topic, it's this. Know your story. Know your story. What did male and female look like for you growing up? What implicit or explicit rules did you learn from your parents, from your friends, from your church, or from your community? What's the basis of what you believe and what you're bringing into conversations? Did you have a parent who, who worked, or did you have a parent who stayed at home? And if so, which parent was that? What did it look like in the church for you growing up? What did you learn from your friends and from culture about what it meant to be male and female? And there's a second thing that we have to do after we know our story, and it's this. Learn their story. Learn their story. When things get contentious and difficult and we start setting up our lures to attract some trolling or find ourselves being attracted to the shiny object floating in the comment section, we have to be able to listen first. According to difficult conversations, this looks like practicing three things. The first is to be curious. The first is to be curious. Ask questions. Seek truth. And take on a posture of learning. 
The second is to listen to stories, to really listen, to hear what the other person is saying and what's behind that. The third is to embrace the and stance. Difficult conversations puts it like this. This can be heard as pretend both of your stories are right. But in fact, it suggests something quite different. Don't pretend anything. Don't worry about accepting or rejecting the other person's story. First, just work to understand it. The mere act of understanding someone else's story doesn't require you to give up your own. The and stance allows you to recognize how you each see things matters. That how you each feel matters. Regardless of what you end up doing, regardless of whether your story influences theirs or theirs influences yours, both stories matter. Now, this could sound a lot like moral relativism, right? Like, just believe that both stories matter and both truths matter, and don't, don't, uh, don't try to figure out what's in the middle of that. Just accept both. Let them have their truth and let you have yours, right? But instead, it means this. Just practice really being able to acknowledge that even if the conclusions are different, and if you feel like your truth wins out, their story just needs to be heard as much as yours does. Your story matters, and my story matters, and I'm still seeking the truth in love. The practice of listening and practicing interdependence and setting a God-honoring example all leads us to the practices of Christ and the following of, our, or of his example. In verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He sets up an example where which we imitate what people who are pursuing after Christ are doing just as they imitate who Christ is. So imitate Christ. The entirety of 1st and 2nd Corinthians comes down to imitate Christ. Imitate Christ who heard and truly listened to the stories of all people he came across, regardless of the conclusion that he came to. Imitate Christ who surrounded himself with men and women who were fully invested into God's mission and he called them together to proclaim the gospel and to teach what he taught and practice those things. Imitate Christ who set an example worth following that multiplied from his disciples to the rest of the world. And so imitate Christ. If we imitate Christ and we set an example that's undeniably attractive when it's compared to the world's practice of debating and trolling, we set an example that builds curiosity and it invites people into another way. We take on reconciliation, especially in the area of men and women, in our own lives first. And then we invite others to that which God has called us to do. I love the way that Tara Beth Leach describes this example in her book, Emboldened. She writes this. When I was a newlywed, living in upstate New York, I went on an evening walk with my black Labrador, Maddie. We lived near the Catskills in the Finger Lakes region, so the landscape was an artist's dream. Our home was nestled on the edge of luscious green foothills that rolled through the region. On that evening, I passed a stone home that looked like it could have come straight out of a Thomas Kincaid painting. The smoke from the chimney was billowing up into the crisp autumn sky. The sun was just beginning to call it a day with its orange, yellow, gold, and indigo dancing in its path. The moment was magical. But it wasn't the sparkling sunset that caught my eye that night. As I passed the home, I heard a commotion inside. There were conversations, clanging of glasses, and children laughing. The lights in the home were bursting out of the windows with a warm yellow glow. 
I knew that it wouldn't be proper for me to peer in, but I just had to take a peek. When I stopped for a moment to look inside, I saw a large family gathered around a table, and I could tell they loved each other. I could tell they enjoyed each other. I could tell they were unified. And as I looked in that day, I was overcome by love, joy, and warmth. I whispered under my breath, that's exactly the type of family I want to have someday. It was attractive to me. It pulled me in. I noticed the beauty and the joy of the fellowship, and I wanted to be there. That's what happens. The people of God on mission is not a place of disunity, a place of gossip, conflict, rejection, pain, and strife, and hatred. It's a place where the Spirit's fruits are present in abundance, so much so that the world around the Christian community can't help but take notice. It's a community so unified, so beautiful, that it stops others in their tracks. Those on the outside can't help but peer in and watch with wonder and notice the unity, love, warmth, and joy. It's a place of men and women at the table, sharing hospitality, sharing gifts, and laying down their lives for each other. It's a place of generosity and care. It's a place of proclamation and light. And when we get it right, the world sees. When we get it right, the world takes notice. When we get it right, the light shines bright. When we get it right, the world sees Jesus. When we get it right, the lost are found. The blind see, the lame walk, and the dead live. This, my friends, is why we gather at the table, not just so we can have a seat and consume, but so we can have a seat and shine before the world. So now this job of reconciliation, this new way for us to be in this world, passes on to you. This new way of us being man and woman, male and female, passes on to you. Are there some apologies that need to be made, some stories that need to be heard, or some conversations that you shut down that need to be reopened? Are there people in your life who you need to practice interdependence with, even when it's tricky and hard and difficult, whose work you need as we complete this mission given to us by Christ? All throughout this series and all throughout Lent, we've been inviting you to fast and pray for specific reconciliation opportunities. And as you do, I would invite you to focus on this, and there's a place to write this in your note, to fast and pray that our practices would benefit the world. The entirety of this passage that we just waded through, this difficult passage, is summed up by the Matthew Henry commentary like this. We must not only be concerned to do good, but that the good that we do be well done. Not only to do good, but that the good that we do be well done. So may our good, especially in the difficult area of relationships between men and women, may the good that we do be well done. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for difficult passages like 1 Corinthians. Thank you, God, that, that these passages and these letters that you've given us, God, that they wake us up to a new way to be. God, as we walk through this season of Lent where we're reconciled to you, as we walk through this season together, help us to be reconciled to each other at the same time. Help us to have conversations that are difficult with grace, learning each other's stories, God, and knowing our own stories, God, and being able to, to not only practice interdependence, but to set an example for the rest of the world. So God, as we walk through this season, would you walk with us and go before us? Would you help us to practice these things? In the name we pray. Amen.